Hey, this is campaign reporter Asma Khalid, and I'm at a Hillary Clinton canvas kickoff for Asian Americans in Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. If you're looking for another podcast, check out Fresh Air, where Terry Gross hosts in-depth conversations with musicians, artists, and writers like Jennifer Lawrence, ta Coates, and Mark Ronson. More candid and personal than you're used to hearing them. Find the Fresh Air Podcast at npr.org slash podcast and on the NPR One app. Okay, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. What a week. We're here a day early to give you all some idea of what to expect before and after this weekend's voting in South Carolina and Nevada. We will do a listener question, too. And as always, we'll end the show with our own personal obsessions of the week in a segment we call Can't Let It Go. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter at NPR. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Hey, it's Tamara Keith. I'm in Las Vegas covering the Democrats. And I'm Sarah McCammon in South Carolina, where I'm covering Republicans. So we've got the Democratic caucus in Nevada and the GOP primary in South Carolina. Those two votes are Saturday. We'll have an episode on the results early next week. But if you want to hear NPR's live coverage the night of those votes, you can stream it at elections.npr.org, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter as well. All right, Tam, you're in Nevada. Democrats. Nevada. <laughs> yeah, I keep doing that. Democrats caucus there in just two days. What is the state of the race there between Sanders and Clinton? I think that the way we could sum this up is by by looking at how the campaigns are talking about it. Uh, and Bernie Sanders and his campaign, they're talking with a lot of optimism. They're talking about momentum, the momentum they got coming out of New Hampshire. Meanwhile, the Clinton campaign, which has been on the ground here much longer, has been really assuming but working for it that Nevada would be the state that began the Clinton firewall. They're now downplaying expectations, saying they don't know what to expect, saying they could win, they could lose, they just don't know. But here's the thing. The Sanders campaign started running ads here in Nevada earlier than the Clinton campaign. Ads in English, ads in Spanish, because we're not in Iowa and New Hampshire anymore. Well, Tam, to your point of the fact that the Sanders campaign started spending early. I mean, back in December, I'd talked to the, uh, someone from the Sanders campaign who'd said that they'd seen the numbers move after they went on Spanish language radio. Then, lo and behold, two, three weeks later, the Clinton campaign came up. So even though the polling is not good, you watch the campaign body language. And that's all you need to know about how close this race potentially is. You also watch where Sanders is that night, and he's going to be in Nevada, and Hillary Clinton's going to be in Texas. So, you know, there's some expectation setting going Going on. On ad spending, Sanders last week outspent Clinton $1.9 million to $1.5 million, according to data from uh, SMG Delta and NBC News. Now, this week, that's actually flipped. The uh, Clinton campaign is up to $3.3 million and Sanders up to three point two. And all of those numbers, though, are much lower than you saw in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. And, and for all this talk about, about ads, you know, what we heard in Iowa so much the other caucus state we've had so far, was that, you know, retail campaigning and going to these small events and shaking hands with voters was really important. I mean, is, the, is it the same in Nevada? Obviously, it's a it's a bigger state. It's a very different state. And there just isn't the time. Exactly. Like, they were in Iowa for... Months. Seven, eight months. They are in Nevada for a week and a half. I mean, now, the Clinton campaign, the Sanders campaign, they've been here several times over the course of the campaign. But the period for the hand-to-hand combat kind of, you know, on the ground, grip and grin, politicking 
it's just shorter here. And I can really see it. I, I've been to some phone banks that both campaigns have done, and their lists don't seem as good. There are a lot of missed connections. Uh, they're knocking on a lot of doors where they haven't identified whether the voters are supporting their candidate or not yet. This time in Iowa, they had already knocked on the same doors three times, four times, and knew exactly where everyone stood. This is just a different scene. So, Tam, there's one ad that stood out for you this week from Hillary's uh, campaign. Yeah, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign went up with this ad today, and um, it is not a traditional ad. Let's hear a little bit of it. I'm not sure. Um, when I was, when my, my parents, they had a of deportation. So this is a little girl, and it was at a forum Clinton did with undocumented immigrants and their families. And this little girl gets up, and she says that she's worried because her parents have been given deportation notices. This little girl, Carla Ortiz, she was born here in America, and Clinton calls her over. Come here, come here, bed. And they kind of hug, and then uh, Carla sits on her lap. I'm going to do everything I can so you don't have to be scared. She and sounded different there. Because they want you to be happy. They want you to be successful. They don't want you to worry too much. Let me do the worrying. I'll do all the worrying. Is that a deal? I'll do the worry. I'll do everything I can to help, okay? It's really emotional. There are people just, like, wiping away tears all over the room. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. It's very raw. It's like an ad that just lets people into a room. And, and that it's really different in that way. Here's the thing, though. Then it pops up with the I'm Hillary Clinton and I approve this message. These kinds of things are better when they're viral because it just was a moment. It was a thing that organically grew. If you're going to do this as a campaign, you know, it can come off as exploitive. But this is the same campaign where Sanders and Clinton are putting ad after ad on the air in South Carolina with the daughter of Eric Garner and, and the mother, the mother of, of Sandra Garner. Bland. And it's like, in terms of outreach to black and brown people, I've really seen them try to do whatever yeah. it takes. But there's a difference, though, I think, between let's just take an example that happened within the last, you know, within the last day. Um, you know, you've got this ad that they're pushing out to show a more natural moment that's supposed to be a raw kind of viral moment. And then this other moment where she went to an overnight shift with uh some women who are doing laundry at the hotel, at she, the was hotel she was staying at, saw, right? Yeah. Now, that was not pushed out by her campaign. Mm-hmm. That was just captured, and it was all over the morning shows and was something that, you know, it's it's like humility, right? Like, yes. if, you're, if you're a humble person, you don't brag about what you did great, right? Yeah. But those, But all those little stories of doing good things then wind up coming out. But do voters in Nevada tell the difference and care about the difference between yeah. who pushes it out? That's what we don't know. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. And and the reality is that not a lot of people probably saw that moment on their local news or their national news in part because the audio was really crappy. Um, and a <laughs> little behind the scenes there on how it yeah. works. For... <laughs> and, and I mean, the Clinton, the audio you can hear in that ad isn't great. The Clinton campaign put subtitles in the video. And just even comparing like Nevada and Dem outreach to South Carolina it feels like Sanders and Clinton have had a little more time spent and effort spent in that state. You know, I was there for a week talking with voters there, and Sanders and Clinton are working very, very, very hard to get at the black vote in that state, which could make up more than half of the votes in that dim primary. 
And that Dem primary is a week from the GOP primary this Saturday. It's going to be on the 27th of this month. So anyways, I did two stories this past week or so on the state of black voters in South Carolina. And we talked about it a bit last week, but there seems to be a growing division between younger black voters and older black voters. But what I found when I went to Bible Way Church of Atlas Road in Columbia, South Carolina on Sunday was that a lot of older black voters love the Clintons. I spoke with one woman who said this. I think he's very genuine. Um, That's my cousin. Yeah. <laughs> she literally called Bill Clinton her cousin. I talked to people who he's not right. But by I, another people mother knew him, had met him, had campaigned for him, could talk about the time that they talked to him about this thing. Like, in many respects, Black South Carolina is Clinton country, and so we're hearing all of these things about young voters, young Black voters, possibly going to Sanders. Even still, I just found an overwhelming majority of the so-called Black establishment, you know, older voters. They are all about Clinton. And so there's been this narrative kind of in the press for the last two or three weeks. You know, oh, my God, is there a simmering battle between young black voters and older black voters? A lot of folks there don't see it as a battle. They see it as a good thing. Uh, I spoke with Daryl Jackson Sr. He's the pastor at Bible Way, and he said this. I think it's healthy for the African-American community to have our vote contested because when there is no contest, we're often taken for granted. He says having Sanders and Clinton both compete for their votes means that they're both talking a better game about Black Lives Matter, about issues that matter to black people. And I have to say, you know, from the time that I've spent following this race there, functionally, black voters in South Carolina for the last few weeks have been white voters. They've been the priority. They've been at the top of the list for these candidates, and they are getting a focus that they actually rarely see in national politics. Well, there's a reason for that. I mean, there were uh, there are more than a majority of the voters in the South Carolina Democratic primary, unlike in Iowa, exactly. unlike New Hampshire, unlike Nevada. And what's so and and, and what I what I kind of have a problem with, you know, watching the shift from New Hampshire and Iowa to Nevada and South Carolina. Everyone says, well, Nevada and South Carolina are at this stage of the game to help give black and brown voters the same kind of relevance as the white voters in, in like those first two states. But it feels very different. It's a shorter calendar. It's a little more ad hoc. It does not feel nearly as big a focus as Iowa and like New Hampshire was. And dare I say, it felt a little bit second class. Well, you should have seen what it was like before they moved South Carolina yeah. and Nevada <laughs> into the first form. Yeah. Um, so that was actually the effort by Democrats to try to move those two places up so that you did reflect a little bit more of the diversity, uh, of the, uh, especially of the party. I mean, some 40 percent of the party is Hispanic or African-American. So the party tried to move that up so that you did hear more about some of those issues. Yeah. But it just ends up being like a really quick two weeks as opposed to like the half a year ramp up to Iowa and New Hampshire. And I was just like, huh, <laughs> close but no cigar. <laughs> so, Sam, do you think that South Carolina then becomes the place where Clinton's firewall begins or not so much? So this is the big question that, I, that I've had for the last few weeks. The question of her firewall is all about how big Sanders can get black voter turnout and young black voter turnout. If he gets 08 levels of turnout, he wins, possibly. If not, he loses. And I talked with Daryl Jackson Sr., the pastor at Bible Way, and he said he's not sure that Sanders can match Obama's 08 turnout. And so far, he hasn't matched exactly. Obama's 08 turnout in uh, Iowa or New Hampshire, even among young voters. Yeah. And so Jackson said about 
the vote in South Carolina. In 08, a lot of black voters of all ages, lots of new black voters, they were voting for Obama not just because they liked him, but because he looked like him. And it meant something very, very important and symbolic. And the thing with Bernie Sanders, um, he said, is that black voters are voting for Sanders because they think he thinks like them. And that might not be as strong of a feeling and it might not galvanize as much support. But we don't know until we know. So here's a question I have. We've talked a lot lately about endorsements and especially from, you know, leading black figures and sort of the warring endorsements between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Do we have a sense? I mean, and Bernie Sanders has picked up some endorsements that, you know, from the the black community that, that surprised some people. Do we have a sense of whether or not those are making a difference and where the where the vote's going to come down? You know, I think that there are two endorsement games. Like, there are the endorsements of the ta Coates and the John Lewises, and then there are the, uh, are the endorsements in that state of your pastor and your Sunday school teacher and your neighbor. And I think that a lot of those conversations are happening and we don't see them. You know, like when I talk with folks in South Carolina – Black voters of all ages were having serious heart-to-hearts with black people that they know. And I wonder how much community influencers matter, and we don't know that yet. And the thing that, that, that I'm sure you found in your reporting and that, that I've you know heard many times covering the South is never underestimate what happens in those black churches and those congregations on Sunday morning and, and Wednesday night when they get together and talk. And as you say, we, we don't know what those conversations involve. All right. Next up, the latest in the GOP race ahead of the primary in South Carolina on Saturday. But first, a quick break. We'll be right back. We'd like to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors who brings us the following message, Stamps.com. Stamps.com helps businesses avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. With Stamps.com, use your own computer and printer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. No more wasting time going to the post office or wasting money on expensive postage meters. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer, a four-week trial, plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in politics. All right, we're back. By the way, thank you for taking the time to rate the show on iTunes. That really, really helps the show find new listeners and grow, and we appreciate it. Thank you. All yeah, right. I have to say, can I just add? Yeah, do it. I just got a lot of warm fuzzies, and I really appreciate Aww. our audience. Okay, South Carolina, the GOP primary is there this weekend. We talked a lot last week about how dirty politics can get when it comes time for the South Carolina primary. This week, well... Look, this is a disturbing pattern now, because for a number of weeks now, Ted Cruz has just been telling lies. Matter you of are principle, the and I'll, single and I'll biggest tell you. liar. You probably are worse than Jeb Bush. <laughs> with him and you push him. Why do you lie? Donald, adults learn not to interrupt you. Liar, liar, pants on fire. So that was the debate from last Saturday in South Carolina. And the three of them, Cruz, Trump, and Rubio, they continued this kind of all week. You cannot simply scream liar when somebody points out the actual position of Donald Trump or the actual position of Marco Rubio. And so I will continue to focus on the substance. But he's a liar. So he'll go up and he'll absolutely and, 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 lie. The bottom exactly. line is there's been this disturbing pattern over the last couple of weeks from Ted Cruz of just saying things that are not true. So this is all getting very Real Housewives for me. I am confused. I'm or lost in this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like stop getting, stop totally being uh, polite and they start, start getting, getting real. real. Or fake or lies. I don't know. What are they <laughs> fighting about? Someone clue me in. Sarah? <laughs> well, a couple things to know. Um, as we've talked about before, South Carolina has a history of dirty politics 
politics of nasty politics. So, you know, this tone arguably is par for the course. It's It's been worse in the past even than this. Also, the stakes are really high this year. You know, we've got different results coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire at the top of the ticket. And we have, you know, an establishment in the Republican Party that's still trying to figure out who to get behind. I think it came to a head this week, perhaps, with Donald Trump and Ted Cruz going after each other over an ad that uh, the Cruz campaign put out attacking Donald Trump's record on abortion. Life, marriage, religious liberty, the Second Amendment. We're just one Supreme Court justice away from losing them all. Would President Trump ban partial birth abortion? Well, look, I'm, I'm very pro-choice. But you would not ban it? No. Or ban partial birth abortion? No, I would. I am... I am pro-choice in every respect. And that was Trump from So this is is a clip from Donald Trump back in 1999 talking to Tim Russert, the late uh, former host of Meet the Press. And, um, you know, Trump has talked about the fact that his position on abortion has evolved, but uh, Ted Cruz is is hitting him hard with this. Of course, the stakes are higher now with uh, Justice Scalia passing over the weekend. So what happened was the Ted Cruz campaign put out this ad. Donald Trump came out, accused Cruz of lying, misrepresenting his record on this and other issues, and threatened to sue Ted Cruz, um, threatened to make an issue of his Canadian birth to an American but mother. But how can he sue? Because, like, Trump said it, right? Well, you can sue. He's sued. Uh, yeah. He sues for he a sues lot of a lot. things. But, yeah. like, but, like, someone tell me what's false about it. Well, so the problem is he says now that this is not representing my current position. Okay. But so what? That would mean then, you know, Tim Russert, when he used to ask people what their position was, well, yeah, like why, I, they, why they changed, yeah. you know? Like, I used to think that Ja Rule was a great rapper. I don't anymore. <laughs> What's changed for you, Sal? <laughs> so much. <laughs> so much. But, like, how can you, like, take it back? You can't take it back. Well, you said it. I mean, well, you can evolve. You have to own your, your record. I mean, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama evolved on same-sex marriage, right? And they, yeah. but, you know, but Hillary Clinton's words were used against her, as were Barack Obama's for having previously been, you know, only for civil unions. But they're not suing anyone over that. They're not suing anyone for it. You know, whether or not you can sue, it doesn't mean that it's going to go anywhere in court. But a little bit for me, it's kind of like, you know, this is politics, man. Like, this is what happens. And when Sarah, you know, when Sarah talks about South Carolina and its reputation for dirty politics and uh, all that, you know, some of the dirty politics isn't quite what you're seeing in South Carolina yet. What you're seeing is ramped up attacks against Mm -hmm. each other because the funnel is narrowing. You know, the field is going to winnow very soon and you were past The Iowa. gloves are off. Yeah, exactly. So the gloves are off now because there's a lot at stake for these guys. And I should say this issue about abortion and, and you know, social issues, they're important here in South Carolina. It's a very, um, the Republican Party tends to be very anti-abortion. And uh, evangelicals are a, a big percentage of the, the electorate here, like in Iowa, possibly even more than in Iowa. This is something that Ted Cruz has been hitting Donald Trump with for a long time. And I think it's a sincere concern for a lot of conservatives, especially religious conservatives. Is Donald Trump really who he says he is? What does his past record really mean? I have a question. Most of this battling has been between Trump, Cruz and Marco Rubio. Do you guys get the sense that that is the fight, that that's what emerges from this? Or or should we still be talking about Jeb Bush and John Kasich? Well, Kasich's still a player, right? I mean, it depends on which poll you look at. I mean, Kasich, yeah, he's still a player, but... 
South Carolina isn't seen as as sort of his wheelhouse. So I, I think, Tam, here in South Carolina, that those three are the ones to really watch. I mean, and, and you're seeing a lot of back and forth between Cruz and Rubio as well. And, and something we'll get to in a little bit is Governor Nikki Haley's endorsement of uh, Marco Rubio. But the Cruz campaign is now saying that that makes South Carolina a must win for Rubio. And, you know, Cruz came out swinging at Trump in response to Trump's threat to sue him. He said, basically, bring it on. So, of course, Trump was ready with a response as well. He hit back with a statement that said, if I want to bring the lawsuit, I will do so. Time will tell, Teddy. So there you go. (laughs) Wow. So you mentioned Nikki Haley. She's the governor of South Carolina, very popular right now. Uh, She endorsed Marco Rubio this week. Yeah, this is a really coveted endorsement. You know, Nikki Haley is coming off a year last year where she handled a lot of difficult things. The murders at the uh, African-American church in Charleston, uh, record flooding. Uh, And she came out looking like a very strong governor, was asked to give the State of the Union response for the Republicans last month. And uh, and that took a jab at Donald Trump. So nobody expected her to endorse Trump. uh, But she gave her blessing to Marco Rubio. This is one of many bruises I will take from Marco Rubio. So if I'm gonna do that, I need you all to go out on Saturday. I need you to go contact 10 people. I need you to jump on Facebook. You know, I need you to go on Instagram. the optics of this is what the establishment, a GOP wants. Um, they've got Nikki Haley, who is diverse. They've got Rubio, who is diverse. They're young, they're fresh. They look like the future of the GOP. This is good for them, no? Absolutely, and, and that was a big part of their message on that stage. After the Haley endorsement, uh, both of them talked about their immigrant parents. Haley said that she thought, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but that choosing someone like Rubio would make her parents proud and show them that the best decision they ever made was to come to America. Uh, Rubio talked about using conservative principles to help lift people up and how the Republican Party needs to reach out to single moms and cab drivers who are trying to make their lives better. This is a message we're hearing from one segment of the Republican Party. It's a very different message than uh, I think what we're hearing from, from Donald Trump. Republicans have made a real effort over the last several years to try to diversify. They have more national candidates. This was a historic field. On the other side, you have white candidates who are Democrats, who are, you know, Hillary Clinton, 68 years old, Bernie Sanders, 74. But the difference is policies, right? And how those candidates, you know, appeal to non-white communities for what they would actually do for them. At the same time, you know, I've heard from a lot of Democrats who are worried about a Marco Rubio in a general election because they think that just the name Rubio, they'll say, I like how you will that. be something that Hispanics will at least take a look at, you know, and say, OK, what does this guy think? Well, what does he do? And that'll make it harder for Democrats to maintain the broad margins that they have had with Hispanics. It'll make them work harder. I think should he make it, that's the true test for the GOP right now. Can they attract real candidates of color who are actually liked by voters of color. Yeah. Well, we'll it's really hard out. it's really hard to get through a primary where the majority of the people that you're trying to appeal to also don't look like that. Yes. Right? I yeah. mean, when you have a majority who are white voters who are conservative and don't want and are sort of having this reaction to the cultural demographic change in the country, that makes it hard. Speaking of Rubio, who is Catholic, we've got to talk about the Pope. He and Poppy. Donald Trump. Is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> the, the, Pope the Pope is Catholic. Catholic. Allegedly. Donald Trump, alleged. Someone catch us up on what happened with him well, and Sam, Donald Trump. The Pope is in Mexico. He uh, And he made these comments when he was asked about Donald Trump. And he said, a person who thinks about building walls wherever they may be and not building bridges is not 
Christian. Mm, shots fired. Uh huh. Mm hmm. And shots fired back. Here, I have the statement that Donald Trump released in response to the Pope. Quote, if and when the Vatican is attacked by ISIS, which, as everyone knows, is ISIS's ultimate trophy, I can promise you that the Pope would have only wished and prayed that Donald Trump would have been president because this would not have happened. Wow. And that was like immediate. Ouch. That was, I yes. mean, it wasn't even, and then he went on TV and he talked about it and he said for a religious leader to question a person's faith is disgraceful. Now, I mean. Isn't that what they that, do? <laughs> they're sort of the arbiters of faith. A little right? bit. Yeah. Trump picks fights with everyone and keeps winning, but like, is the Pope the last straw? Oh, come on. How many last straws have there been in the last yeah, six months? Yeah, and not in a Republican primary. I mean, they basically have discounted this Pope as a socialist. Yeah. You know, yeah. but this pope definitely leans in on a lot of the American politics and uh, other things in ways other popes hadn't. You know, and for me, this this echoes in many ways the discussion we had a couple months ago about Syrian refugees and whether or not to, to let them into the country, which, you know, of course, heated up in the wake of the Paris attacks. And, you know, you had Donald Trump's statement uh, saying no Muslims should come into the U.S. And you had a lot of Republican leaders, especially saying, you know, we got to have better vetting for refugees. So don't let any in right now. And you had religious groups, um, Catholics for sure, evangelicals as well, a lot of religious groups coming out and saying, you know, our, our faith requires us to help refugees. I think this is very much in line with what Pope Francis is saying about, about immigration. You're seeing, you know, just sort of a clash of philosophies here. All right. Next up, we're going to do a listener question in just a minute. First, a quick break. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the Great Courses Plus video learning service providing unlimited access to a wide variety of videos on topics like history, science, literature, and personal development. You can watch The Great Courses Plus on your TV, tablet, laptop, or phone. At thegreatcoursesplus.com politics, they're giving listeners an opportunity to watch The Fundamentals of Photography, as well as hundreds of other courses free. To access this offer, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com politics. Support for NPR and the following message also comes from Personal Capital, combining free online financial tools that provide unprecedented transparency with personal attention from dedicated financial advisors. The result is a complete transformation in the way you understand, manage, and grow your net worth. On the web at personalcapital.com politics. We're back. Here's a listener question. This is one we got via email from a listener named Matt. Hi, Matt. He wrote, the media focuses often on what young voters are thinking and how they are planning to vote. I've done some phone banking and canvassing for both local and national elections, and the vast majority of people that I speak to from those lists are well over the age of 40. What percentage of young voters actually vote, and how does that compare to older voters? Thanks so much. All the best. Matt. Domenico, you have an answer for this? The only time in the last quarter century that voters under 45 have made up a majority of the electorate was in 1992. Otherwise, older voters are pretty much the ones who are the most consistent about voting. If you look even younger, 18 to 29 in the general election in 2012 was only 19 percent of the electorate. They went overwhelmingly for Barack Obama. Otherwise, back to 2000, they were about 15% of the electorate. Uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire so far, what we saw, just looking at some of the early results, Bernie Sanders is not coming 
close to what Barack Obama had turned out. I mean, in 2008 in Iowa, 22% of the electorate was 18 to 29 and went overwhelmingly for Obama. This time it was only 18%. Generally, older voters are more reliable voters, which is what you're seeing actually play out between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out on the Republican side because you have a couple of candidates who are in their 40s who are trying to appeal to younger voters and whether or not they can get more of them out. All right. Keep the questions coming in. Thanks, Dominica. Before we get to Can't Let It Go, I have to mention the Supreme Court. If you missed our episode from Sunday all about the politics and policy ramifications following the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, go check that out. All right. All right. Now it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Tam, you're first. So caucusing, as we know from Iowa, is a little complicated. And uh, the people at the Bernie Sanders campaign put together a video here in Nevada to explain how the caucus process works. And they had a little girl narrate the video. Hi, my name is Montserrat Guerra. <laughs> That's not I creepy at all. <laughs> I want to talk to you how easy it is to caucus for Bernie Sanders. On Saturday, February 20th. Is she in a jewelry box? <laughs> what is the music? This is weird. Well, it gets weirder. Once you're inside, you separate into a group of Bernie peeps. Uh, because uh, they use stuffed animals uh, to describe how it works. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I actually find it totally cute and endearing. Um, they made tiny little Bernie Sanders shirts for all the stuffed animals. Aww. And at one point... They cut to a, a little baby doll. That one's being weirdly still. But we're inclusive. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is that? That's creepy. I wish you could have let this go. <laughs> yeah, because now I can't let this go, and that's not good. So was it more cute than creepy or more creepy than cute? Well, the little girl is adorbs, uh, but the the creep factor depends on how you feel about stuffed animals and little baby dolls whose eyes don't close. Ooh. <laughs> Wow. Let's leave that there. <laughs> Sarah, what can you not let go? Um, Donald Trump. I mean, no surprise. But uh, specifically, this week in South Carolina, he has been campaigning a lot. And um, he got kind of awkwardly mixed up, shall we say. What, what Ted Cruz, what he did, what Ted Cruz did to Obama, where... He said that Obama had quit the race oh, man. and take our votes, right? Is that right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Carson. I'm Carson. 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 He said. No, he it's said not right, that. Donald Trump. <laughs> so he, oh, my God. He meant, he, he meant Ben Carson, who, uh, who, who is also African-American, as, as we might have noticed. You don't say. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. And I mean, what he's referring to is the thing that happened in Iowa where, uh, you know, it was reported that uh, Ben Carson was going to head home and I guess repack his suitcase before heading on to New Hampshire. And uh, the Ted Cruz campaign sort of made it look like he was uh, possibly dropping out of the race. So that's what Trump meant to go after Cruz for doing to Ben Carson, not Barack Obama. But uh, I think Politico kind of won this one because their lead on the story was Donald Trump can't keep his Midwesterners straight. They're both from the Midwest. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're both big eared. That's what it is. I don't even think of Ben Carson as a Midwesterner, right? I mean, spending so much. I mean, he's, I mean, he's from he? Detroit. But, oh, OK. Yeah. But he spent so much time in Maryland. Well, I must say I am constantly confused for my colleague, Sonari Glinton. 
And after a while, you just learn to laugh it off. Hey, Sonari. <laughs> you guys are not even remotely the same. Thank you. An old white lady in the South did once tell me that, that all blonde Midwesterners look the same, but I don't think that's the same thing. <laughs> Domenico, what can you not let go this week? Well, okay. I still can't let go of superdelegates. I just can't quit them. This is how <laughs> okay. it goes. I mean, so the Associated Press came out today with their updated delegate count, and Hillary Clinton still has a giant lead. She's up 449 to 19. Wait, no, no, no. How is that even possible? When she lost New Hampshire, she barely won Iowa. That is crazy. Ah, yes. Well, in regular delegates, Bernie Sanders has a narrow 36 to 32 lead based on the actual vote. But there are these 712 superdelegates. A lot of us know what superdelegates are, but some of us don't know what they are. What are superdelegates, Domenico? So these are unpledged leaders and elected officials is the official title for them. We call them superdelegates, and this is how geeky we are as far as what gives someone a a, a superpower. They are allowed to vote however they want at convention. Uh, They're not based on how the person votes in their state, uh, none of that matters. Why are there already several times more declared superdelegates than there are real? This is weird. Because superdelegates don't actually have to declare who they're voting for. They're free to go however they want. It's not based on the state party vote whatsoever. When they show up in July at the national convention, they can vote for whoever they want to. Because Hillary Clinton has been around so long, she's been able to wrap up way more of them than even in 2008. And they've declared early, is the thing? Yeah, they've come out publicly and said who they want to endorse. Of course, they can switch sides. Uh, And in November, they were 359 for Hillary Clinton to just eight for Bernie (laughs) Sanders. So Bernie Sanders has picked up 11 more. But but Clinton picked up 90. So even in that same time where Bernie Sanders had this massive win in New Hampshire, uh, she's she's picked up even more than he has. Is he trying to get superdelegates and failing or just not trying? It's hard. He's never been part of the Democratic Party. He's not a Democrat. Mm. He caucuses with Democrats, but he's an independent. He doesn't have the same ties that she does to this whole thing. And, you know, this is something that a lot of Bernie Sanders fans actually get mad about. Uh, when I talk about this because they say superdelegates have never not gone with whoever's won the popular vote in the Democratic primary. That's true, but superdelegates were actually created in the 1980s to prevent a candidate who they saw as unacceptable or somebody who they thought couldn't win. Hillary Clinton's already got a majority of those superdelegates. So so how big is the chance that superdelegates determine who gets the nomination on the convention floor. They could because there's they make up 15% of the party. So there's 712 of them. And they make up 15% of the overall delegates. And if, you know, Bernie Sanders beats her by, you know, 8% or 14% and all of them go her way, then she wins. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to be able to make that argument that they can do that. But, you know, that's why when you look at the delegate totals, that's what's explaining why her lead is what it is. And Sam, what can you not let go of? It is another Jeb Bush situation. I feel like I've written and talked about him a lot in kind of his foibles. He had another one this week. Um, He toured a gun manufacturing plant uh, this week, and the owners of that factory gave him a gun with his name engraved on it. Fine, But then he tweeted an image of that gun with the inscription with the caption, America, period. The Internet was not impressed, did not like it. Before you knew it, it became its own meme and people were mocking him and posting 
funny images of other things to mock him. A lot of people tweeted the caption America with the photo of the actress America Ferreira. <laughs> um, it was just like another <laughs> instance a, yeah. where like Jeb Bush cannot win. It, you almost looked at the mall and thought, OK, this is America. Apparently there were like pictures of like Homer Simpson eating lots of food. <laughs> right. There was like uh, someone tweeted Eddie Murphy from coming to America with his royal high, <laughs> royal th- uh, crown. I can endorse that. Yeah. Someone tweeted George Bush with the painting of a dog that he painted. <laughs> someone tweeted lots of people had like tweets of nerf guns and fake guns it was it, it was, was like funny. a there was like a like a bloody mary with like a donut or something and like a sandwich and fried yeah, chicken right. in it and it was i mean like here's the thing jeb bush makes mistakes but when jeb bush makes a mistake it's worse than if anyone else makes a mistake because he's now in this rut where everyone thinks he's just a walking gaff i guarantee you if donald trump had tweeted that gun if ted cruz had done that it wouldn't have been as as big of a deal, but it's just Jeb Bush. I also think it's like not quite in his wheelhouse to yeah. go to the gun thing as like his, you know, he's suddenly like he's a, a, country a club big Republican. gun guy. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, it's pretty transparent what they'd be trying to do with that. Yes. You know, Jeb Bush, I don't know that if you Google imaged Jeb Bush gun that you would find him with one. Yeah. You know? I think it just shows how, how you know, how important South Carolina is to him, how much he is really trying to pick up some momentum here. South Carolina certainly isn't the only place where guns are popular, but guns are popular in the South. And, uh, you know, maybe he was trying to tap into that. By the way, I just Google imaged Jeb Bush gun, and the first one that comes up is Donald Trump with a gun. (laughs) (laughs) That is so this this campaign. The internet strikes again. The internet is steady striking. All right, that is all the time we have this week. Let us know if you like the show. Thanks again for those who rated us on iTunes. The love was felt. Find us on Twitter. Send us your questions there or by email. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. And don't forget, this Saturday we'll be live on elections.npr.org. Or catch us on your local public radio station throughout the week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent. And I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. We're going to be back with an episode on Nevada. 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 One of my pet peeves, my second can't let it go. Why do we say it like that? But whatever. Can we talk about that? We should talk talk about that. We'll be back with an episode on Nevada. Just suck it up. Okay, okay. We're going to be back with an episode on Nevada and South Carolina early next week. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.